Uh, hey, if you would, grab your Bibles. Let's remain standing. We're about to read from God's Word, so out of respect, we always stand. Uh, we're looking this morning at Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. It's page 1026 in those blue hardback Bibles all throughout the room. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's printed Word out in front of them. Uh, what will pass away are my words, but the Word of the Lord will never pass away. We're looking at uh, Luke chapter 7 this morning, verses 11 through 17. If you don't know who I am, I haven't preached here in a month, by the way. My name is Dustin. I do work here. Uh, I, I get to be the pastor here. Uh, we're going through a series right now called Encountering Jesus, the women in the gospel of Luke. And uh, hopefully you're going to be excited and learn a lot from this series. We're going to be looking today of the story of the widow of Nain. Uh, friends, with that in mind, hear from the word of the Lord, the gospel of of Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. Then he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will remain forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, would you be seated as we pray together and keep that Bible open in front of you. Now, Father, we love your word. Father, this morning we pray that as we behold the face of Jesus Christ, as we encounter him, Lord, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the other. And Lord, that we would see Jesus in all of his glory and understand why he came and what he is doing in this world even today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, well, hey, good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, it's been about a month since the last time that I preached. I am a little rusty, as you can tell, because I'm using my laptop because I couldn't figure out how to get the printer to work this morning. Uh, and yes, I recognize that I have entirely too many stickers on my laptop and I don't know if you can see it, but one of them says, the okay fisherman, and truer words have probably never been spoken about me. I love that it says, the okay. Well, I'm okay. Uh, but uh, friends, this morning, I'm excited to really kick off this series with you in some ways, uh, in, in encounters with Jesus, or encountering Jesus, because the whole point of this series is to see how the Gospel of Luke uniquely shares about the women who encounter Jesus. And the goal is not to preach women, and my goal is not to preach a man. My goal is to preach Christ so that you see Jesus and his mission all the more clearly. So we're going to learn about these women, but we're going to learn about these women primarily so that you and I can learn about Jesus. So with that in mind, just as an overview, I want you to recognize something about the Gospel of Luke. Uh, listen to this list of women who appear in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, who's the first woman to appear in the Gospel of Luke? It's not Mary. Elizabeth. Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother. Luke alone tells us the story of Elizabeth. And then, of course, we're introduced to Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
And then the next woman we're introduced to is right here in our passage, this widow of Nain. Nain is a city. And then later on in this same chapter, we're introduced to a woman who is described as a sinful woman of the city. If you don't know what that's referring to, ask your mother. Maybe she can explain it to you. Then we are introduced in Luke chapter 8. You can look right here, verses 1 through 3. Luke lets us know that who financed Jesus' ministry? Who financed Jesus' ministry? Who is paying for his meals? Luke 8, 1 through 3 tells us it was women. And then it names those women who provided for Jesus out of their means. Women like Susanna. Women like Mary Magdalene, who you've probably heard of. And then Luke tells us a story about a woman with a discharge of blood for 12 years, which is parallel to a 12-year-old girl who is deathly sick. Luke alone tells us the story of these two sisters named Mary and Martha. Luke alone tells us a story of a woman with a disabling spirit in Luke 13. Luke alone tells us the parable of the persistent widow. Luke alone tells us about a widow who gives her final two pennies to the temple. And Jesus says she's given more than all of the rich. And then, of course, there is a little girl in the Gospel of Luke, and she has to do with Peter. Who is that little girl? Anybody know? Remember when uh, Peter, you know, the apostle, the de facto leader of the 12 apostles, Peter, that guy? If you remember in his life story, there's a point where Peter apostatizes. He denounces Jesus. And he says, I don't know Jesus. And then who speaks up? A little girl, a servant girl says, You're, you were one of those guys with them. You know, the honesty of a child. And then, of course, there were women who were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Which is just fascinating, isn't it? That the empty tomb, that testimony, hinges on the eyewitness testimony of women. And in fact, the gospel writers tell, the men, tell us that the men, the apostles, didn't even believe it at first until they saw it with their own eyes. And then Luke names those women at the empty tomb. So all that to say, throughout this series, we're going to be looking at how these women help us encounter Jesus for ourselves. And we uniquely hear the voice of Luke as inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the widow of Nain. Look at Luke chapter 7. Again, Luke is the only author that tells us this story. It's a fascinating story. Perhaps you've never actually heard a sermon or ever thought about it as it's a standalone passage. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at sort of three questions. Who is Jesus? What was he like? And what did he come to do? Now, for some of you, you may not know those answers. You know, who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what was Jesus like? But there are going to be a lot of you who already know who Jesus is, what he has come to do, and what Jesus was like. And the reason that I think it's still worth your time listening to me and why you should focus on what I'm saying is because the Bible says that when you come to faith in Jesus, that we all with unveiled faces, we behold the glory of God. And by beholding him, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, the way that you and I become like Jesus, become more of who we were meant to be, is by beholding the face of Jesus Christ. And friends, there is no better glory or reason to rejoice than the character of Jesus. <laughs> uh, friends, the old preacher saying is, God did not present an airtight argument for the existence of God. What he did provide was an airtight person. And that person is Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at who he is and what he was like and what he has come to do. 
Let's go to verse 11. It says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples, as Jesus' disciples were there, and a great crowd went with him. Notice right there in verse 11, we're just going to go verse by verse this morning. Notice there in verse 11 that it says, soon after this, he went to a town called Nain. Now, Nain is a very small community at this time, just like it's a small community now. But notice what Luke says next. I want you to focus on this one verse. Why does Luke say it that way? There are his disciples, and then there's a crowd. Did you catch that? Look at verse 11. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Why does Luke distinguish between his disciples and this crowd? Aren't they all the same thing? What's fascinating, and we're going to see in this passage, is actually there's a crowd that meets another large crowd. And it's the two crowds that are meeting, and Jesus and this woman and her dead son are at the heart of these two crowds meeting. And yet Luke wants you to know that not everybody in the crowd is a disciple. And friends, if you study the Gospels, if you were to investigate Christianity, what you will realize over and over again is that the Gospel writers and the Apostles are trying to get you and I to see that just because you and I are around Jesus, that does not make you and me disciples of Jesus. Lots of people in this world have positive affection for Jesus. I mean, who doesn't like Jesus? Everybody likes Jesus, right? There are a lot of people who want to be around Jesus that are in the crowd. And yet Luke is constantly pushing both uh, implicitly and explicitly throughout his gospel to move people like you and me out of the crowd and into the realm of disciple. Uh, Jesus can say, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons and do miracles? And yet Jesus will say what? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In fact, in, in Luke, he asks this question. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You see, what we find, in, especially in Luke, is over and over again, there are people in the crowd that are around Jesus that can listen to his teachings, and yet something is holding them back. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have a heart, but it's not beating. They are not reborn of the Spirit. You see, friends, for many of you, I know that you trust in Christ and you are a disciple. But friends, it's so important that you and I hold to a biblical understanding of conversion. No one is born a Christian. You being in the crowd does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is being born of the Spirit. Jesus says in John 3, unless you are born of the Spirit and of water, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Later on, Jesus meets a scribe in one of the Gospels, and the scribe asks Jesus, what's the point of life? What's the point of life? And Jesus says, well, what would you say to that? And you know what the scribe says? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And you know what Jesus says? So you've answered wisely, and you are not far from the kingdom of God. He's not in, but he's getting closer. See, what Jesus is constantly pushing on is for people to repent and trust in him and enter the kingdom of God, to cease to be a part of the crowd and to become his disciple. See, what's the problem with just hanging around the crowd? What's the problem with hanging around with the crowd? Well, 
The problem is, is that crowd has sort of, it can have mob mentality, right? Of course, we all know at the end of the Gospels, Jesus goes to his crucifixion and the crowd cries what? They take a mob mentality and they cry, crucify him, crucify him, right? And this is why I think, Christian, it's so important for you to cease to want to be approved by the crowd. The crowd is nothing to attain to. The crowd is not where you want to be swayed. You don't want to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and every teaching of man. You want to be a disciple, right? Because it's ultimately the crowd that turns on Jesus. Why would you want to be a part of the crowd? I mean, whenever I think about the crowd, I always try to think back to that uh, Hans Christian Andersen fable. You know, you know which one I'm talking about? Uh, the Emperor's New Clothes. You ever read that story? You know, you know that one? What's the whole point of the story? There's a guy and he's not wearing any what? He's not even clothes on. And what does the crowd say? Ooh, that's beautiful. Right? And then finally, somebody puts two and two together. And who is it? It's a little kid. It says, you don't have any clothes on. And then everybody's like snaps out of it. They have to snap out of that mob mentality, out of the crowd. You know, this is part of what we do when we come to the words of Jesus himself. As we stop listening to the crowd and what they may say about Jesus and what they may say about faith, and we listen to the words of the master. Let's keep going. Look at verse 12. It says, As Jesus drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Right, so Nain is a small community. Uh, I think Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke says it's only about 250 people uh, today. You can go on Google Maps today. This is great. You can Google search N-E-I-N, Nain. It's in Israel right now, and uh, it only has a couple of hundred residents uh, so this gate here where they stop, and you see verse 12 it says they stopped near the gate, was probably a very small, meager gate. Maybe it was more ceremonial than anything. But if you read the Bible, you'll know the gate is where all of the important stuff happens, right? So you, in the, if you could picture yourself there, there's Jesus and this crowd of people. And remember, the crowd wants to see miracles, right? They want to see Jesus do something, right? And then you have within that crowd a group of people who are truly committed, the disciples, and they're following Jesus, and Jesus comes to this small town with no traffic lights, and he meets this second crowd being led by a widowed mother with a plank, which that's what a beer is. It's not German for beer. Well, it is, but that's not what this passage is talking about, right? It's a plank of wood. It's an open coffin. And they're carrying her dead son, and they meet at the gate, right? And the gate is where everything important happens, you know, I, like, in terms of, like, an um, analogy, I mean, where in the Rogue Valley would you say the gates of the community are? Like, where, does the, where do the important things happen? Where, do, where does everybody go? Now, we may say, like, City Hall, right? But no one really goes there. No one wants to go there. You know where everyone in the Rogue Valley meets simultaneously? Who knows? Somebody knows. It is, it is at the gate of Costco. I swear to you, everyone you know and everyone you don't know meets at the gates of Costco. Half the county is either getting in or getting out, and they're all angry, right? You got carts flying in. I really believe this. I believe that if Jesus were alive, he would be preaching at the front door of Costco. I mean, let's do a theological excursus for just a second on this. Like, everybody goes to Costco, right? 
I mean, if you think it's the end of the world and you need a prepper stash, you go to Costco and you buy your prepper stash, right? If you just want a massive TV and you just want to live for this world, where do you get your big TV from? It's like right when you walk in. You could just be, they even had like, you know, like a Gucci watch one time. I'm like, where am I? You're at Costco. You're where the world meets itself, right? Now, of course, all that to say, the tone in this passage is very different than that, but the point is clear. Jesus goes to a public place. He goes where everybody can see what he's about to do. Does Jesus intentionally go to Nain to meet this woman? We don't know that. Luke doesn't mention that. Sometimes Jesus will say he has to go to certain places to meet certain people. Like Jesus will often go to Samaria, even though his disciples don't really want to go there. But we don't know. Is Jesus just going through this town and he just happened to see this wretched sight, this heart-rending sight? I think that's very possible that Jesus just goes to Nain and sees something so tragic and decides to do something. But we don't know. Luke doesn't mention that. But we do know that there is a dead man. Look at verse 12. He's described as a necros, a dead body. A man who had died was being carried out, right? Think of it as a big plank. They didn't use coffins in Israel during this time. It was a a big plank that they would have carried like this. And then Luke wants you to know something specific about this man. He's the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Now, that's... uh, doubly tragic, right? Not only does she no longer have a husband and had to have witnessed her husband's death and also walked out in front of her husband's bier while he was taken to his burial place, now her child, her only son, is carried out in the same way. It's such a tragic scene that we find that basically the whole town has come out for this. Did you see that in verse 12? It says a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Uh, Perhaps she was an especially godly woman. And so in a sign of solidarity, the whole community goes out and grieves with her. But you have to recognize that with her husband gone and her oldest son gone, she really is in a financially and economically destitute state. We don't often think about that because we don't really think about things that way. But in this world, her financial and her whole livelihood is at stake. I loved how one commentator put it. He said, although uh, her life is continuing, her existence is now in danger. How is she going to get through life? Look at verse 13. What happens? And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And said to her, do not weep. You know, friends, if you were to look at verse 13, what I want you to grasp, if you can, is that the compassion of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus is our glory. It is the thing that we rejoice in. It is the thing that quickens our heart and gives us hope. It's the thing that makes you raise your hand in worship. Because Jesus is full of compassion. Uh, Friends, we can get so caught up in a world that lacks compassion. And if anything, you and I are living in a world where there is a dearth of compassion. And yet when you and I encounter Jesus, we recognize that the God who made the heavens is full of compassion. And when he sees an orphaned widow, he has compassion on her. 
You know, I'm reminded of the great uh, Princeton theologian, B.B. Warfield. He, he taught at Princeton Seminary uh, back in its glory days about 120 years ago. And B.B. Warfield wrote a great little treatise called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And uh, in chapter one, Warfield writes this, the emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to Jesus, whose whole life was a mission of mercy, is no doubt compassion. This emotional movement was aroused in our Lord as well by the sight of individual distress as by the spectacle of man's universal misery. It set our Lord's heart throbbing with pity at the mere sight of a bereaved widow wailing by the bier of her only son as they bore him forth to burial, though no appeal was made for relief. You see, what Warfield is describing here, of course, is that if there was one uh, emotional attribute to give to Jesus, it's one of compassion, to be deeply moved in his spirit. And then Warfield rightly acknowledges that this woman never asked Jesus to do anything. She never says anything. In fact, what happens is Jesus walks up to her and says, don't weep, stop crying. And then Jesus acts. It's an incredible reminder that grace often comes to us even before we ask for it. Jesus is always on a mission of grace, moving towards people, often before they even know to repent. How does does Romans describe the gospel? While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Think about Ephesians chapter 2. It describes it this way. And you and I were dead in our sins and in our trespasses, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Jesus is on a mission to seek and to save the lost. Before she can even think to ask Jesus to do something, he's already moving towards her. And he's already set his face like a flint to raise him from the dead. See, friends, this is what Jesus is like. Jesus is full of compassion, and he is always moving towards people, even sinners. (laughs) But that's what a great physician does, isn't it? He comes to people who are in need of healing. But isn't it kind of mean of Jesus to come up to this woman in her emotional state and say, don't weep? I mean, it's literally two words. It's stop crying, don't weep. You know, I, I think how often do we tell people that? You know, how often do we come up to people in their misery and say, well, stop crying. It's going to be okay. But that's not how Jesus means it. And he doesn't mean it that way because he uniquely can do something about it. He can actually make the sad thing come untrue. And what does he do? Well, look at verse 14. Then he came up and touched the beer. 
he comes up to the plank, and the bearers stood still. I love that Luke adds that detail, right? These young men, right? These guys probably under the age of 20, you know, are like carrying this dead body. They would have buried him very soon after death, and they're going straight to bury him, and they stop because Jesus comes, and he puts his hand on the bier. Uh, you know, as what one commentator points out, maybe he does that to get them to stop. <laughs> they're literally walking, and Jesus is like, stop. And they don't stop, and so Jesus puts his hand on the beer and stops them. And what does Jesus say next? Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. You know, what's shocking about this story, of course, is if you know the Old Testament, you'll know that for you to touch a dead body would have made you defiled, would have made you unclean. And yet, amazingly, over and over again in the life of Jesus, what happens when unclean things touch Jesus? Instead of being defiled by them, power goes out of him to make them clean and to make them new. Instead of being defiled by this dead body, the dead body comes to life. You see, that's the great change in Jesus. He's not just a great moral teacher. He has actual power in him to make the dead rise. You know, I love that phrase, young man, I say to you, arise. I mean, it just shows you and me why Jesus came into this world. Jesus came to tell dead people, wake up. He didn't come to make good people a little better. He came to raise the dead, to take the children of wrath who are following the course of the power of the air, who are under the sway of Satan himself, who are a part of this world and are passing away with it, and he has come to raise the dead. In John 10, he says, I call my sheep by name. Jesus calls you by name and says, wake up arise. Friends, it's a picture of our salvation. Have you heard the voice of Jesus yet? Young man, I say to you, arise. You know, I think about, you know, on Mother's Day, I'm always like, well, how do I not screw this one up? (laughs) You know, either in the pulpit or at home. But every Mother's Day, I'm often reminded of uh, one of my favorite stories. And uh, it's about a lady named Monica Uh, You maybe can relate to her. Monica was a very godly woman. Uh, Her husband was not a believer. A lot of women in that state. A lot of women who trust in Jesus are not led spiritually by their husbands. Monica was in that situation. Monica loved Jesus, loved his church, wasn't spiritually led. And so she had a son, uh, Gus. And Gus was a beautiful, well-spoken young man, very smart. She did everything she could to provide for his education. But of course, Gus was attractive and well-spoken, which meant he was very popular with the ladies, and he was very ambitious. And so what do young, ambitious men do when they grow up and they get out of school? Where do they go? They go party, and they move to what? They move to the city. So Gus moves off to the city and loves women and becomes very erudite. He learns all kind of new philosophical ideas hangs out with very influential people, becomes very important. But all throughout his life, Monica, his mother, prays and prays and prays for him. But all she sees is her pagan son who doesn't trust in Jesus. But then one day, in God's perfect 
timing. Gus hears the voice of children <laughs> saying, take up and read, tole lege, take up and read. And Gus thinks that's weird. And so for some reason, Gus remembers his mom and her spiritual heritage, and he picks up a Bible, if you can believe it. And he opens up to the book of Romans, and he reads about the gospel. And Gus becomes a Christian. In fact, you'll know who Gus is. Gus is really whom? St. Augustine, my spirit animal. <laughs> Not really, but I love Augustine. And of course, who is his mother? St. Monica. If I wasn't having technical difficulties, I would show you a, a, a picture. You know, it's amazing in church art, whether it's paintings or stained glass windows or any of the expression of the great Christian arts, every time you get a picture or a painting of St. Augustine, who's always standing behind him? His poor mother. <laughs> and what is she doing? She's crying, right? Because of her knucklehead son, right? But it's a wonderful reminder that St. Monica's prayers were answered. Friends, if Jesus has compassion on this widow, how can he not have compassion on every mother who is praying for their son to come back to the faith? St. Augustine talks about this story in his famous book, Confessions. It's the world's first autobiography. Augustine writes, While my mother constantly wept over me in your sight as over a dead man, it was over one who, though dead, could still be raised to life again. Monica offered me to you upon the bier of her prayers, begging you to say to this widow's son, young man, arise, I tell you, that he might live again and begin to speak so that you, Lord, could restore him to his mother. Friends, this is a story of hope and of the compassion of God to mothers. You know, William Barclay, the great Scottish commentary, uh, commentator, says this is the most lovely of all the stories in the Gospels. And he says that because Jesus raises this young man to life, and then he does what? What does he do? He raises the son to life, and then he does what? He gives him to his mother. The compassion of Jesus on full display. The loveliest of all the stories. Of course, verse 16, it finishes the story. Fear seized everybody. They glorify God and they say, a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. Notice here that they don't say God himself has come in human form. In fact, this is the whole thrust of the gospel of Luke. People are just beginning to understand who Jesus is. And so the, the best faith that they can have at this point is, I guess a prophet is here. They don't call him the Lord. And in fact, it's not until later in the gospel that people really start to figure out who Jesus is. And the reason they say a prophet has risen among us is because, guess what? There are not a lot of people brought back from the dead, even in the Bible. I know sometimes when we read the Bible, we're like, oh, this stuff happens all the time. It doesn't, okay? And you know why? It's because we can name these people. It was like that one widow in that one town. In the Old Testament, there's very few people brought back from the dead. But guess who they were? In 1 Kings 17, Elijah raises a widow's son from the dead. And then Elisha, Elijah's successor, in 2 Kings chapter 4, he goes to a little town you don't care about called Shunem. 
another small little town, and instead of a widow, there's a very wealthy woman, very influential woman. And her only son dies, and Elisha raises him to life. Interestingly, Shunem is only two miles away from Nain. If you go on Google Maps today and you look at Shunem versus Nain, it's literally two communities on the other side of a big hill. So when Jesus walks into Nain and he sees a widow and he wants to preach the kingdom and he raises a widow's son back from the dead, is it any wonder why everyone starts to put it together that this guy is a prophet? This guy is something special. Elisha did it just two miles ago, years ago. We haven't seen a prophet do this in hundreds of years. You see, Jesus has come not just to be a prophet, but he is the Lord himself. You see, we get that hint right there in verse 13. Did you miss that? Look at verse 13. What does Luke call Jesus? The Lord. You see, what Luke is trying to get you to see, which is the whole thrust of the gospel message, that Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just here to raise the dead from life. He is the Lord himself, come to throw open the kingdom of God, to forgive us all of our sins. He's a prophet, yes, because he speaks on behalf of God, but he's also our high priest because he is the sacrifice for our sins, and he is the king who reigns on high. He is the Lord himself come to save us all. But how is Jesus able to raise this man from the dead? If you were to go look at Elijah and Elisha, it's very interesting. There's a lot of similarities between the prophets who raised the dead and Jesus. But over and over again, the prophets, they have to pray and pray and pray, and they prostrate themselves. They work really hard to raise the dead. Jesus walks up and says, wake up. He has a different level of authority. And the reason Jesus can do that, the reason Jesus can give you hope and forgive your sins and can raise you from the dead is why? Because there will come a day when Jesus himself is laid on a plank of wood and he will become a dead man on a plank of wood. But not because he did something wrong, but because we did something wrong for our sins. And Jesus would receive no great crowd processing him to his burial place. His crowd at his death were two men, two secret disciples, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and a crowd of women, people like Mary, Joanna. And he's laid into a tomb, but three days he comes back from the dead because he is the Lord himself. Uh, friends, that's the invitation to encounter Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the story of the widow of Nain. Uh, Father, we pray for hope, that you would call people by name. Lord, that you would comfort the mothers in the room. And Lord, that they would have bold faith. Lord, they would be like this widow of Nain and see their sons raised to life. Father, I pray for every one of us who trust in you, Lord, that we would behold the compassion of Jesus. Lord, that we would see him deeply moved, that we would picture his hand on the bier. And Lord, that we would carry that same compassion to a world that is desperate for it. Change us from the inside out, Lord. Give us hearts of compassion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.